Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, well, welcome back to Season 4. We are continuing our reading and uh, discussion in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus and really Gentiles all over the uh, um, the Roman Empire. This has been a, an amazing start to the letter. Paul is writing to these Christians, and one of the main purposes of his letter is to make them realize what they have in Christ. Again, like when we're kids, you know, we don't always appreciate everything our parents have done for us. <laughs> But as we grow up, our eyes are opened and we realize, whoa, like you did what? Like this sacrifice and that sacrifice. And Paul is kind of listing off to them in this opening of of Ephesians. Just look at what you have in Christ and bless God because of that. Yeah. Look at everything God's done for you. And he specifically will go through like seven different things that we have in Jesus that we wouldn't have otherwise. And so it's just a huge blessing to, to not only be in Christ, but then look and see what God went through in order to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses words like being chosen, holy, blameless, adopted, grace, uh, redeemed, forgiven, and God making known this mystery of his will to us. Um, and so those are some of the big picture things that we looked at. And we ended with this idea of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like that down payment or that that insurance almost. Uh, proving that that God really does love us and he really did all this um, for us in hopes that we get to go be with him one day. And so chapter one is is really unlike a lot of Paul's openings, um, but Paul digs in, digs his heels into trying to get them to appreciate more fully what the gospel has done for them. And now he's going to expand on that some more in chapter two. But we're not going to get into chapter two today. We're just going to look at verses 15 through 23. And we're going to be discussing... A prayer, uh, what what Paul has been praying for them and is continuing to pray for these disciples to have. Um, Stephen, you got anything to add before we jump in? No, let's hop on uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I'll read verses 15 through 23. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
All right, so something that is a pretty typical thing for Paul to do at the beginning of his epistles is to mention in some way how he's been praying for the particular group that he's writing to um, or how he's been making mention of them in his prayers. And uh, I got to say, Stephen, as I, as I always examine Paul's way that he prays for people, I don't pray like Paul. <laughs> I don't think I always think the same way that he does when mm-hmm. I'm praying for other people. Yeah, just like kind of like uh, when we list our blessings, we don't always list the blessings that Paul it talks about in the first part of chapter one. Yeah. And when we pray, I know my prayers often don't sound like uh, these deep spiritual prayers that Paul is giving, not just, you know, for health and safety, um, but for spiritual growth and spiritual understanding. And if we were to boil this prayer down, I think one of the main things he's praying for them in this prayer is that they would realize what God has done for them. Mm-hmm. Have, having the eyes of their hearts opened, I think is one of the key phrases in here. Mm-hmm. But he starts out in verse 15, and he says, listen, I've heard good reports about you. Um, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, or your trust. I really like that word trust for the word faith. And your love toward all the saints. So you've got kind of the vertical th- good things going on. You're trusting King Jesus. And the horizontal good stuff going on. You are loving his holy ones, his saints, his people. Yeah. Which, I mean, isn't that exactly what Jesus called his people to do? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And here these people are exhibiting that apparently. And in a church, mind you, that would be a blended congregation um, of both Jew and Gentile. Paul will talk more about that in chapter 2. So it's encouraging to see that they are keeping that up and that they're doing that. Um, because that, that might be challenging culturally for them to do. But they're loving the Lord, and they're loving each other. And that's a huge, huge plus um, compared to some of the other epistles that we read Paul right. Uh, right. Yeah, it's true. And it's interesting that, um, I mean, Paul is not just like, yeah, I pray for you every once in a while. Like in verse 16, he says, I don't stop mentioning you. <laughs> I remember you. I'm constantly giving thanks for you. And that's just so important for us to constantly be giving thanks to God. And the more we give thanks, the more we realize there is to give thanks for. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gratitude is one of the most powerful motivators. If we're thankful for what God has done, it's going to move us to act on that gratitude. And I think, again, that's one of the main purposes in Ephesians 1 is Paul's pulling back the curtain and saying, "Look, look at what God has done for you. If you are grateful for that, it's going to change you. It's going to move you to be and do more for the Lord because of what he's done for you. Yeah. When you just see all the the effort that God went through, um, you can't help but break out in prayer and thank God for what he's done. Um, And so in verse 17, Paul has a specific prayer that he wants for them. Um, he, He wants them to gain more wisdom. Um, and, uh, he wants them to have more knowledge, I guess, is another way to, to think about that, um, and apply it in their lives. And so that's why he says, um, may he give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Mm -hmm. And again, revelation, I don't think we need to think, uh, you know, the last book of the Bible, uh, John's vision revelation, it just means a revealing. Mm -hmm. And so, all of these words are having to do with like, I want God to open your eyes. I want him to give you understanding. And the primary way he does that is through his word. We'll see this later in chapter three. He says like, if you want 
my insight into the mystery of Christ, read this. You know, this is um, the way that the Spirit communicates with us is through the, the written word of the apostles and prophets in the scriptures. So it's just really helpful to see his emphasis on this. And again, I love verse 18. Uh, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, yeah. that you may know these three things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's that idea of, of having your I mean, your heart doesn't literally have eyes. Yeah, but just <laughs> picturing that is kind of a funny thing to picture. But, yeah. I mean, it really it goes in line with what Jesus was talking about, that kind of the idea of your your heart being the window for the soul, right? Uh, I guess, actually, I got that phrase backward, don't I? People talk about it, your eyes being the window of the soul, but it reveals your heart. Um, and so you kind of reverse that and think about your heart having eyes. It's cool to think about. Yeah, and it's really almost like, you know... We can we can read things. We can intellectually like know facts. We saying like, I want you to know this in your heart, mm-hmm. like deep down in you. I want you to see this and really understand what this is. So the three things are going to be the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and then his immeasurable the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So if you were to just say three words, hope, inheritance, and power, mm-hmm. like that is what he's trying to get them to understand and see. So the first one is this hope. I want the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. And hope is one of those words that we, we throw around a lot in English. And it's kind of a wishy-washy word. You know, yeah. Hope, hope my win. Hope my team wins the game. You know. Yeah. Or I hope to get this for Christmas, or, or fill in the blank, whatever. And it might be something ridiculous, is the way we phrase that. And what it really is is the way that we use it sometimes is, I don't think this is going to happen. Right. You know, this is just oh, kind I of. I hope it does. You yeah. Know, this this is a wishful wishful thinking, and that's kind of the way we use the word. And I don't think that's wrong in and of itself, but I think it does in turn, kind of fray our mind as to what biblical hope looks like. Right. Um, and the book of Hebrews actually has a lot to say about this idea of hope being steadfast, it being the anchor of the soul. Mm-hmm. The hope that we have in God isn't some wishy-washy, superstitious thing. It is something that is sure that we know. Um, and that's a very important thing we need to understand. Yeah. One way I've heard hope described biblically is that it is a promise of God plus our trust or faith in that promise. Because if God has made a promise in Scripture about salvation or about the future or whatever, but we don't really trust Him on that, well, we're not going to have strong hope mm-hmm. biblically. Um, and the opposite is true. We may have great expectations and trust or think that God is going to do something, but if God hasn't actually promised to do it, there's a lot of people who become disillusioned or really disappointed because I thought God was going to do this thing in my life. And then like, well, it turns out God didn't actually promise to do that. So your hope in God was not placed on his promises. And that's a big deal. Like a lot of people struggle with their faith because of things like that. So but biblical hope, when we see God's promises, what he has said he will do for us in scripture, and then we trust that God will do that. It is a powerful motivator moving mm-hmm. forward. That like I know that God's going to embrace me from the dead. Mm-hmm. I know that He began a good work in me. Will bring it to completion. Mm-hmm. If I keep working with Him, you know. Um, there are just some things in Scripture that we can build our hope on. Of course, Jesus, His resurrection will be the foundation for that in just a minute. 
Yeah, the second one we kind of see in this is he, he wants them to understand or know this, uh, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And this is an idea we actually briefly talked about in last week's podcast as we were discussing um, us having an inheritance in God. But also there's a sense in which we are an inheritance for God. And that's very clear to see here in verse 18, which again, that just kind of changes your perspective on your role as a Christian and your, your role in this world. When you see yourself as the possession or the inheritance that God is going to get whenever our life is over, whenever uh, the Lord Jesus comes back. And so when we think of ourselves as a as this possession or this inheritance, we start to treat ourselves differently. Um, I think if, if I have something, and I actually, I've got a young daughter, and I've got things now that I treasure, that I enjoy, you know, physical possessions, and there are things I possess right now that I could see myself one day in my will writing, you know, when, when I pass, I want Sally, my daughter, to have that thing. And knowing that that's something I'm going to give her for an inheritance, I treat that object that I have differently. I'm just not throwing it around. Or when we move, I'm, I'm, putting, I'm putting it in the fragile box. I'm being careful with the way that I treat it. And if we see ourselves as the inheritance of God, we're good. we need to treat ourselves as holy. We need to treat ourselves as, as chosen instruments for God. Um, and it's going to change, I think, the way we look at ourselves. Um, it's the idea of us being a temple of God, um, if you will. And so uh, just I love that idea of us being God's inheritance. Yeah, I think that's right. Because, I mean, this it talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And it's just so important to ask, you know, we often approach Christianity or church or spirituality in terms of, okay, well, what do I get out of it? You know, um, what? how is this going to benefit me in the long run? What uh, What is, and when we talk about you know, our inheritance, there is a blessing at the end of all this. There is a reward. There is a prize. But we need to ask more often, I need to ask more often, what does God want out of all this? Mm-hmm. At the end of his sacrifice and his effort and his planning and working in the world, what does God want? And what he wants is an inheritance of nations. He wants holy ones from every nation under heaven to be his forever and dwell with him forever in perfect fellowship. And that's really important for us to think about and why Paul says here, like, I want you to realize what... God wants out of this. Yeah. If you will realize that you are his inheritance, and there's actually some really cool Old Testament passages we could look at on this, like Deuteronomy chapter 4, because in in the Old Testament, Israel, that physical nation, was God's chosen inheritance. They're described that way a couple of times in the Old Testament. And here, again, he's writing to Gentiles who are not part of that physical nation that God chose. But he's saying, no, you are also God's inheritance like of everything that God could have. The whole world already belongs to him. So what does he want? He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants you to give yourself to him because you have that choice. Mm-hmm. And so seeing it from God's perspective, I think, is really important. Yeah. 
And it just, it floors me to think about God wants a relationship with me. Mm -hmm. He wants me there in heaven, which would fly in the face of many of the paganistic deities that that were being preached in that day. You know, Zeus, Hermes, all them others. It was kind of like, well, I just carefully approach this God and hopefully he gives me what I want. And that just flies in the face of what the God of the Bible wants. The God of the Bible does want a relationship with me. Now he wants me to be holy and there needs to be reverence and respect there. I can't just approach him like I would an old buddy. But he does want a relationship. And that is just so different from what a lot of their culture was teaching. And um, I, I think it would just impress us all the more to think about the God of this entire universe, the Creator, wants a relationship with Chase. Uh, that's so impressive to me. Mm-hmm. I'm his inheritance. Yeah. And so the third thing is uh, verse 19 the immeasurable greatness of his power. Uh, this is going to come Paul. up again in. Uh, Chapter three that he's able able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Yeah, Paul is man. He's just so good with words. Uh, my translation, by the way, says in verse nineteen, "What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe?" Um, it's just it's overwhelming to, to understand what what God has done and what He wants for us. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about that because there are times where we don't know what God will do. But we need not have any doubt about what God can do. He can do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Um, This is immeasurable greatness of power. And we need to remember that, that we serve a God who doesn't just give us everything we want, but that's not because he can't. He can do whatever he wants. He is all-powerful. This is a fancy word for that. Omnipotent. Mm -hmm. All power belongs to God. And we need to pray like that. And remember that God has the ability to do anything, and even more than we're asking him to do. And we can ask him think a lot of things. But uh, the, the example that he's going to use here to illustrate his power is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. And I think what I do, at least when I come to this section, I'm like, okay, all right, can God help me in this area of my life? And you just fill in the blank. Everybody fill in the blank. Well, can God help me blank? Well, if he can raise Jesus from the dead, then he can help you there. It's kind of, I think, Paul's point here. In comparison, knowing that God could do that, he can do anything in your life as well. And this is not just unique to Paul here in Ephesians 1. Other New Testament writers and other places in in Scripture, they will hinge the power of God on the fact that he rose Jesus from the dead. Um, That that is what we hang our hat on uh, as we look at the power of God. That's right. And if you look at the way he says it here in verse 20, this is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He took a Jewish carpenter, you know, of course he is, God incarnate, of course. But you think about this. He was poor. He wasn't super well-known in the world. He was well-known, you know, in the Jewish circles. And he was, he was crucified. He was killed at the hands of the Roman and Jewish authorities and left in two. And everybody thought, it's over. It is over. There's nothing left to do. And he was there for three days. You know, it wasn't like just popped right back out after he died. But three days later, that tomb is empty. Mm -hmm. And that man is living and breathing and walking around again. 
And his movement continues to this day. And then he ascends. He leaves the earth and is at God's right hand. Mm -hmm. This one who became human, took on flesh, lived a sinless life, is now reigning with God above all authority and power. And he used like a bunch of different words in verse 21. Yeah. Rule, authority, power, dominion above every name. This age, the one to come. Yeah. Basically everything. There's <laughs> nothing in this world or the world that we can't see that is not subject to Jesus. Right. And that's that's the conclusion that he moves to in verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet. By the way, that word subject, or as we think of submission, that idea, it's not a very popular idea in our culture right now. They, that just that idea that I have to submit to some kind of authority. But as Christians... Get used to it. I mean, that, that is exactly what we have to see ourselves as, is subject to Jesus because of what he did. He's the king, um, and Paul has demonstrated that very clearly because of the resurrection. Yeah, and we talked about that, I think, in one of our uh, shows after the Gospel of Acts, um, the Gospel of Acts, the, the book of Acts, yeah. about the kingdom. There is good news in Acts. It's yeah. good news of the kingdom, yeah. which inherently means there's a king and I have to submit to him. But he, he starts an analogy here that it's not just a king who's kind of separate and so far above his kingdom that like we're just like way down here. He says he describes it as Jesus is the head and his church, his people, are the body. And the head and the body work together. Yeah. So the body the, is subject to the head. It obeys the head, hopefully. If my hand is decided one day, I'm, I'm not going to listen to the brain anymore. Like, yeah. Forget that. My whole body would have issues with that. It's, it's not good when your body's not unified. But the body has to submit to the head for it to work effectively yeah. together. And it's just so cool. I mean, Jesus is so far above us, as Paul has very clearly stated. And we might be tempted to say, wow, I mean, I can never come close to Jesus. And Paul turns around and says, actually, you're a part of his body. Now, he's the head. But you're also a part of his body. There's mm -hmm. still this closeness to him that you have. And it's a blessing. We, although we have this great God, we still are a part of him. Um, we still work with him, work alongside him in his kingdom. Mm -hmm. And he does things through us. It says the church is yeah. his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And again, there's some language here that is kind of so huge, I don't know exactly what to make of it. But the idea of God is going to work to fill all things, and one of the ways he does that is through his body. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that God works in the world is through his people. Yeah. And again, if we're thinking about the hope that God has called us to, if we're thinking about that we're his inheritance, and that he has immeasurable power that's working on our behalf, and now I am his body, God has chosen me, taken care of me, giving, giving me belonging and purpose and direction, and now he has a mission for me. I am his hands and his feet. I need to go out and do what the head, the king, wants me to do in the world. That is just a whole different paradigm for our life, a different perspective for us to think about than, well, what do I want out of my life and who am I? It's like, no, like I am Christ's. I'm his inheritance. I belong to God. He bought me. He's blessed me. And he has work for me to do. Yes. Uh, and just, Lord willing, next week when we get into chapter 2, one of the words Paul uses is us being God's workmanship, mm -hmm. um, which is super cool. And we'll, we'll, Lord willing, get into that next week. But just that idea that the world looks at us and they say, why are you working that way? Why are you shaped that way? Why are you acting that way? And we get to very proudly and confidently say, because I'm God's work. 
uh, the, the the Lord has shaped me because of all this stuff that He did for me. Um, he's He's brought me back from the dead. He's brought me to life, and um, that, I just love that idea of being God's workmanship. And not really thought about it, but Paul's really hinting at that here in chapter one, and mm-hmm. it's going to expound on it more in chapter two, which makes sense for the flow of thought. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening today. Um, if you have any questions on what you're hearing, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, 717-585-0949 or email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe, rate, review, or for more information about what we're doing, uh, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much.